I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meted is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. G'day and welcome to the Aussie Med Ed, the Australian Medical Education Podcast, where we get to interview specialists in a variety of medical areas, asking their opinion on their certain conditions and obtaining their insight into how they diagnose and treat that condition. In these COVID times, it's a way of replacing the relaxed discussion around the hospital by allowing the listener to put forward questions to be answered and addressed on their behalf. I hope you enjoy the whole program and welcome once again to Aussie Med Ed. And on this episode of Aussie Med Ed, I've been actually asked to talk about shoulder injuries. This is quite a common scenario and more common now that winter season started in Australia and Australian rules football has returned to playing. Consequently, given it's my area of expertise, I've been asked to talk about it from an orthopaedic surgeon's perspective. Hopefully you'll find this little monologue useful, but please don't hesitate to email me for any other suggestions you might want to hear about and other topics of interest. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Adelaide and also a senior lecturer at the University of Adelaide involved in orthopaedic musculoskeletal teaching. Not only would this information be useful for the general practitioner seeing a patient on a regular basis, but also for the medical student revising for their exams or preparing for their OSCE examination. I hope you enjoy the podcast series, and if so, please feel free to subscribe, give us a like or review, or tell your friends about it. We look forward to having you listen to our podcast series, and we hope you find it enjoyable. I'd like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast has been produced, and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. So today I've been asked to talk about shoulder injuries, and in particular shoulder dislocations. I would like to thank my medical students who nominated this topic. Given it's my area of expertise, I've decided just to give up a small monologue. I hope you find this useful in a pragmatic approach to the treatment of such injuries. I think I'll just start by saying that my first approach to shoulder injuries is the same as any other joint in the body. We like to try and divide it up into different classifications or different divisions to way, in the way I think about it. I like to think about things in groups of threes. What I mean by that is if we divide a injury or a problem with a shoulder, we can think of it as being either elective, traumatic, or a combination of the two, three divisions. If we think of the things that occur in the shoulder traumatic injuries, we think of fractures, dislocations, maybe tendon tears, and occasionally infections, which may present as a traumatic presentation, i.e. these are things that might present to a casualty presentation. Of course, any assessment of a patient starts off by taking a full history determining more about what occurred, i.e. was it a simple bump while playing football or landing on a side of the arm so that it could strain the AC joint? Was there a knock to the neck which could lead to referred pain into the shoulder? Or was there actually a, a tackle or something, the arm held into abducted extreme rotated position with a definite sensation of the shoulder popping out a joint that could make you think of a dislocation? All these things can be factors in presentations that will help you form a diagnosis. Following on from that, the examination is also extremely important, noting, noting the, what the arm looks like when they present, i.e. does it look deformed and is it being held in the internally rotated position that makes you think of a dislocated shoulder, which is usually fairly obvious and the patient can feel like the shoulder's out of joint. Is it actually just more tender at the AC joint and it's more swollen on that side or is it a deformity of the bone? Or is the clavicle itself irregular and there's a large lump along the shaft of the clavicle making you think of a clavicle fracture? If the history and examination is fairly insidious and if the patient looks unwell, 
you've always got to consider that it, the patient might be presenting, uh, recalling a traumatic episode, but maybe a first presentation of an infection of the glenohumeral joint or the soft tissues. Less common, but something worth considering. And of course, in an older patient, an acute trauma, traumatic episode can lead to an acute disruption of the tendon. And I've also seen this following motorbike injuries as well. Certainly an older person with a dislocated shoulder can lead on to an acute rupture of the rotator cuff, but this is less common. When we come to assess a patient, obviously the history has been important, but also knowing past history is extremely important. Have they had other dislocations and other joints, which would make you think of recurrent instability? Has there been a family history of it? And in my experience, patients who dislocate their shoulders often have had some other sort of soft tissue injury or some signs of laxity, such as they may have recurrent sprains of their ankle, they may have ruptured their cruciate ligament, or they may have actually dislocated their other shoulder. So these are vitally important information in the history. For most patients that we would see are a younger patient playing sport. They've actually had a fall whilst playing football, or they've been knocked on the ground, or they've come off a push bike. And these are very common presentations. And they may present with an obvious deformity or dislocated shoulder, which had need to be reduced in casualty. Or it could present with a lump at the lateral end of the AC joint or clavicle, thinking of an AC joint subluxation or dislocation. Usually they're most tender at the localised site, i.e. they're tender at the AC joint or the, the shoulder itself or they can't move the shoulder. And the first investigation of choice is an x-ray, which shows that the pathology straight off. So shoulder dislocations are a very common scenario and certainly high profile. And I, people ask, why, why does it occur so commonly? Well, I think it occurs in a group of people that are more prone to it. These patients tend to commonly have a his, family history of dislocations or they may have injured their knee previously, having ruptured a cruciate or may have sprained an ankle in the past. And as such, these patients are more prone to getting dislocations. Therefore, there are some patients who more likely dislocate and the ones who are extremely lax are probably even greater risk of re-dislocation despite surgery. Why are shoulder dislocations in general fairly common too? It's not just relating to the actual hormones or the ligaments themselves or the genetics of the uh, collagen fibres. But also you've got to look at the actual anatomy of the shoulder. The humeral head is four times larger than the glenoid socket. And I like to think of the glenoid as being a fairly shallow socket, which is fairly flat. You can think of it like a small saucer. If you try and balance a soccer ball onto a small saucer, it doesn't seem to sit there very well. The way the body produces a more congruent uh, socket for the shoulder, it actually increases the size of the saucer or the glenoid by putting soft tissue around the outside of it in the shape of a uh, lip, which is almost like turning the saucer into a soup bowl by putting a lip on the edge of the saucer. A soft tissue edge, lip on the edge of the saucer makes it into a soup bowl. It's just like the glenoid um, has the soft tissue labour around the edge, which makes it into a socket for the humeral head. This, lab this labrum or soft tissue is, is malleable or stretchy and can actually accommodate movements of the shoulder in many directions. But after an acute traumatic episode, it can either, it can either tear or it can pull away from the glenoid with a fragment of bone with it. What we call a soft tissue tear of the labrum is called a bank heart lesion. Uh, whilst when bone pulls away with it as well, that's known as a bony bank heart lesion. Following a first-time dislocation, obviously the shoulder needs to be reduced. The treatment is an acute reduction manoeuvre and there's multiple different methods of reducing it, varying from the Hippocratic, where it's purely inline traction, to the Cocker method, which involves traction, internal and then external rotation, and other variations of these. Now, once a first dislocation occurs, that soft tissue may not heal back to the correct position, and in fact often doesn't. Despite people thinking 
that a use of a sling might be required in the first dislocation, the sling will not hold the shoulder in the correct position to allow the labrum to, hold, to heal back appropriately. On occasions, the labrum may sit back well and heal up fine, or the patient may go on to be, get stiffness anyway and not have recurrent instability. But some patients will get recurrent instability because the labrum doesn't either heal back to the, lean, the glenoid edge or it actually heals but more medialised. It's a bit like taking the soup bowl with a soft tissue rim to it, breaking the rim off and then trying to glue it back but gluing it back in the wrong position and the, the soccer ball wants to fall out of the, out of the, soccer, out of the soup bowl. Therefore, the soft tissue anatomy, which pulls away from the bony anatomy, predisposes to recurrent instability in a lot of patients. If the large fragment of bone comes away with the labrum, or known as a large bony bank out lesion, and often we talk about a figure of about 20% the width of the glenoid, if a large bit of bone pulls away, then this makes it even more unstable because the size of the glenoid is now smaller and therefore increases the chance of redislocation. Consequently, after a first dislocation, there's a large number of, of patients will go on to get redislocations or secondary instability. And therefore, in some patients, it may be advisable to actually, after the first dislocation, to advocate for either repairing the labrum or at least being a bit more cautious in their rehab. Consequently, shoulder dislocations are relatively common because of the anatomy and the predisposition to develop dislocations because of the small size of the glenoid and the soft tissue labrum. Also relating to a genetic predisposition in some people with ligament laxity, and this has been made worse over recent years with the actual extreme force put through the bodies and the demands of the sporting athlete in many of the sports that are undertaken. Shoulder dislocations, of course, can be classified in several ways. There can be the first-time dislocation or recurrent dislocation. There can be unidirectional, i.e. it goes out either the front, anteriorly, posteriorly, or inferiorly. Or there can be multidirectional instability. And this also can be assessed by the patient's genetic predisposition for it, i.e. do they have lax ligaments in general. Most dislocations are unilateral, i.e. anterior dislocations, occurring after a first episode and then leading to recurrent instability. Some patients, however, have multidirectional... Likewise, the examination can be useful too, such as looking at hyperextensibility of the elbow, the wrist, the fingers and the knees and various forms of classification of ligament laxity such as the Wynn-Davies signs or other, so other classification systems can be used to decide whether there's generalised ligament laxity. But this should be taken into account. It's probably one of the most useful assessment tools I have to determining whether there is a likely chance of recurrent instability. There used to be some talk about putting them in a sling uh, to try and help the shoulder stabilise. However, it's been shown that the sling, the standard sling, doesn't hold the shoulder in the correct position for the labrum to heal in the correct position. Really, if you are going to put them in a sling, you've got to put them in an abduction sling with the arm in the neutral alignment, i.e. pointing straight ahead with the arm away from the body. And while there are specific slings for this, and we do use them post-operatively on occasions, they don't really hold the shoulder as well as we'd like because the moment you get undressed or take them off to have a shower, the shoulder moves back into the incorrect position. Therefore, nowadays, after one dislocation, the standard treatment would be to place the patient in a sling for comfort, and as soon as the sling, sorry, as soon as the pain settles, then the sling can be removed, mobilisation can be recommenced, so as to strengthen the musculature around the shoulder and prevent atrophy. 
There have been studies that show in patients under the age of 35 who have a first-time dislocation, there's a large number of re-dislocations, quoting even up to as high as 80%. Consequently, in the high sporting endeavouring patients, it may be suitable to consider an arthroscopic stabilisation or repair of the labrum initially. However, most patients might be treated with a sling for a period of time and hope that the shoulder doesn't re-dislocate. In these patients, we organise physiotherapy to strengthen the musculature around the shoulder, the subscapularis, supraspinatus, infraspinatus, as well as the deltoid, with a slow return back to normal activities over a period of time. If there's been a bony bankart lesion and the labrum is pulled away with a large amount of bone from the front of the glenoid, then this is a different scenario and it makes the patient or the shoulder more unstable. In this scenario, it might be an ar- argument for considering an early stabilisation or repair of this bony fragment, or on, on occasions this may be accepted if it's less than 20%, but if, they, if it does go on to develop instability, then it may mean a different type of surgical procedure is required. Of course, there are different types of scoring systems to help determine the prognosis for a shoulder instability, and one particular scoring system is known as the ISIS score, which looks at the age of the patient at the time of the injury, i.e. less than 20, gives them a higher score than greater than 20. The degree of sporting competition, i.e. is it competitive or just recreational. The type of sport, is it contact or forced overhead. Whether the patient has pre-existing shoulder hyperlaxity. And whether there's also a deformity on the humeral head at the time of the x-rays taken. As well as a deformity of the glenoid. Now when the shoulder dislocates, it actually can, it pumps out the front of the shoulder over the edge of the glenoid and make a dent in the back of the humeral head. This dent is known as a Hill-Sachs lesion, spelled H-I-L-L-S-A-C-H, apostrophe S, a Hill-Sachs lesion. And this is actually a dent on the humeral head, which, when the shoulder rolls into a certain position, can engage on the edge of the front of the glenoid and lever itself out. Most Hill-Sachs lesions are small or shallow and don't have any major impact, but a large Hill-Sachs lesion, combined with also some deficiency in the glenoid, can lead to quite severe shoulder instability. So by taking into account the age of the patient, the level of sporting prowess, the actual degree of sport they're playing or the type of sport, as well as the bony anatomy that's been damaged at the time of the injury can determine whether the shoulder is going to be unstable or be stable. And for the most unstable ones, then the ISIS score would assess this patient as requiring surgery. So what sort of surgery is performed? Well, there's various types that can be undertaken. The most come down to either an anatomical repair or a reconstruction now the anatomical repair is designed to try and repair the labrum back to the edge of the glenoid as well as tightening up part of the ligaments around it, the capsule. This can be done either arthroscopically or through an open approach, so usually through a cut on the front of the shoulder. Usually this involves roughening up the edge of the glenoid and tying down the labrum to that with the, either using sutures or usually sutures with anch- attached to small fragments of plastic or metal known as anchors to tie the labrum down to the edge of it. Some of these anchors are bioabsorbable and others are dissolved with time. Others remain permanently in. This will help bring the labrum back to the edge of the glenoid and also tighten up the capsule around it. And this is known as an anatomical repair. and is performed for either anterior, but it can be done for anterior, posterior and inferior instability. If there's a large amount of bone missing, however, then the bone needs to be reconstructed in some way. And also, if if the patient has had an anatomical repair previously and they've gone on to re-dislocate, then a salvage procedure needs to be undertaken. 
And the most common one of these nowadays is known as a Latter-J procedure, also known as a Latter-J Bristow. And this is where a piece of bone is attached to the front of the glenoid. And the most common way of doing this is taking the anterior half of the coracoid process, which is right next to the shoulder, it's actually an extension of the scapula, and attached to that piece of bone is the short head of biceps and the coracobrachialis musculature. Now this bit of bone, along with those tendons, are transferred to the front of the glenoid and secured with one or two screws. This increases the size of the glenoid by increasing the width from front to back, as well as reconstructs or repairs or replaces the bone that's missing, and also allows for those tendons attached to the short head of biceps and the coracobrachialis to act as a sling so that when the arm is in the abducted and externally rotated position, holds the humeroid back into position. And it is this latter aspect which probably helps to the stability of the shoulder. Pictures of these can be shown in many textbooks and you can have a look at those. But needless to say, this is more commonly done nowadays than it was several years ago. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, however, shoulders can go on to re-dislocate and there is certainly many examples of this often seen in the media. This relates to the fact that the actual patient's genetics are still at abnormal in that they often the patients who dislocate have shoulder instability or ligament laxity as we talked about prior. Whenever operation is undertaken, the patient will still need a period of time in a sling and immobilising their shoulder and then coming out to slowly regain range of motion, often avoiding the position of dislocation for a period of time and then slowly strengthening it with a slow return back to full activities depending on what the, the surgeon is happy for the patient to do. Now the other dislocation that occurs around the shoulder, which is quite common, is the dislocation of the acromioclavicular joint. And this is also a very common scenario, often when the patient or sportsman is driven into the ground by a tackle and the tip of their shoulder hits the, hits the ground in an axial direction. So consequently the actual shoulder is driven down with the, on the, with the patient on their side. In this scenario, the actual AC joint or the end of the clavicle hitting the edge of the chromium takes an impact and this can lead to a sprain or soft tissue swelling around the area or it can lead to actual disruption of the ligament stabilising this, this joint. The stabilising structures for the acromioclavicular joint are predominantly the ligaments from the coracoid to the undersurface of the clavicle known as coracoclavicular ligaments. After a significant strain or force is transmitted through this, these can be disrupted leading to either stretching or complete breakage of one or both of the ligaments and therefore the actual joint becomes unstable. This may present with pain at the AC joint and a lump at the area. And what that lump is perceived to be is the clavicle setting up out of joint. What really is happening is the coracoclavicular ligaments are disrupted and the whole of the shoulder is falling off the clavicle. Normally the coracoclavicular ligaments hold the whole of the shoulder, the scapula, the glenohumeral joint, the whole of the arm, up to the clavicle and when they're disrupted gravity itself falls, lets the scapula fall away. The degree of displacement can be graded and there's many different grading systems but the most common one used is the Rockwood classification which relates on type 1 being a sprain with no disruption to the x-rays, type 2 being slight displacement, type 3 being up to 100% displacement, Type 5 being over 100%, while type 4s and 6 are in a different directions, and they're quite rare. 
So normally I try and think of them as a sprain, or totally undisplaced, slightly displaced, significantly displaced, or very significantly displaced. Type 3 and type 5 are the more common ones that present to an orthopaedic surgeon. And there's different evidence of whether they need to be how they're treated. Most people treat, consider type 3 could be treated with, with or without surgery, whilst type 5 may be recommended to have surgery. The main issues that can arise from these dislocated AC joints are both cosmesis, it looks abnormal, but more importantly it actually puts stress on the muscles around the shoulder leading to discomfort. A lot of patients will be able to cope quite well with a dislocated AC joint and many patients may decide not to go for surgery. Usually after initial injury, the patient's treated with ice and rest and placed in a sling. Once the swelling settles down and x-rays are performed, one can assess how far displaced the AC joint is. If it's only moderately displaced or minorly displaced, i.e. it's a sprain or it's less than 25% or certainly less than 100% displaced, then physiotherapy may be started and the patient might find they do quite well. If, however, it's getting up to 100% or more, then surgery may be offered depending on the patient's situation. This surgery, however, is often best undertaken in the first few weeks just following injury to allow the coracoclavicular ligaments to scar up and heal. If left longer, then it needs to be considered a reconstruction-type procedure. The initial procedures, if done in the first few weeks, involves tying the clavicle down to the coracoids so the ligaments between the two bones can scar up and heal. And there's various ways of doing that. Often involve passing of a suture, either percutaneously or through a small, through a small cut on the front of the shoulder. Sometimes... In the past, screws have been used, and there are other devices that can be incorporated. Recovery depends on how well the patient heals, and certainly the older the patient or the poorer the health, the less chance that there is for the ligament to heal, and also depends on if there are other factors too, such as smoking, which delays the healing of the ligaments to the bone. If the patient isn't treated in the acute stages but go on, does go on to develop problems later, then there is always a procedure available, such as a reconstruction-type procedure. This can involve repairing the ligaments, primarily tying the clavicle down to the coracoid, but also using a substitute or reconstruction to help reconstruct the ligaments between the two bones. This may involve transferring another ligament nearby to the undersurface of the clavicle, or even taking a tendon from somewhere else in the body to use. Either way, whether it be acute repair or a, a delayed repair, there is a risk of failure because the ligaments may not heal and then the tendons can pull away from the bone. Most AC joints, however, don't involve a significant displacement and can be treated without surgery and require just ice and physiotherapy. And if surgery is required for the more displaced one, down the track most patients heal very well and the chance of re-injury is significantly less. There are other dislocations that occur around the shoulder. The third joint in the shoulder is the sternoclavicular joint this can dislocate either anteriorly or posteriorly. The problem with this joint is that it's usually fairly stable, but once dislocated, reduction means it often remains unstable. An anterior dislocation will often scar up and lead to a lump, but most often doesn't cause major issues, while posterior dislocation in an acute setting can put pressure on the trachea or the vasculature around the trachea, and this can be quite serious and should be reduced immediately. Luckily, these injuries are fairly rare and the medical student just need to be aware of. I think it's a small summary of the injuries that can occur around a shoulder and the things to look up for as a, for a medical student. 
Obviously, you can go into a lot more detail and textbooks will give you a lot more information about this. But this gives a little pragmatic approach to how I approach most shoulder dislocations, either glenohumeral joint or the AC joint. Well, I hope that explains things in a little bit more detail. I hope in the meantime, please stay safe and we look forward to our next episode of Aussie Med Thank you for listening. The information provided to you today is designed to complement the information provided to you in your local region and should supplement your readings and teachings in that area. Please don't take it as the only way of treating this condition or assessing a condition, but really as one one of various ways of assessing these conditions. Please also be aware that the information provided today is really just general medical advice and isn't designed to actually be a source of medical information regarding your particular condition. Remember to consult your specialist or medical practitioner if you have concerns about a condition raised in this podcast. Thanks once again for listening to our podcast, Aussie Med Ed, or the Australian Medical Education Podcast. We really enjoy hosting this podcast. I hope you find it useful to hear a pragmatic approach to everyday conditions. If you have any questions or information you want to ask about us, or you'd like to put a suggestion for a topic, please don't hesitate to email us at gavin at ed-ed.com.au. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed listening to it, and we look forward to hosting it next fortnight when we introduce a new topic. Thank you.